Luke 22 and verses 7 through to 45 is quite a long section. And the title for today, which is just a summary of it all, is The Last Supper in Gethsemane. I would like us to see today that Jesus had this longing to invite his followers to whom he gave the kingdom to come and sit with him and enjoy him. But then he would go to the lonely place where only he could go to mean that that experience would continue for eternity. Let's take the reading together. We're going to read it all. Uh, So that's Luke chapter 22, starting from verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out with purse, without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. 
The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. It's a long section. There are six distinct little um, sections within this reading. The first one is the preparations for the Passover festival meal. The second is the Passover meal itself and the Lord's new instructions to his apostles regarding regarding remembering him. The third section is then you get the squabble between the apostles as to which one of them was the greatest. In that setting, it's just ridiculous to think that they could do that. Then the fourth little section is the Lord's prayer for Simon's faith or him telling him that he had been praying for Simon and that his faith would be preserved and the fifth little section then is the advance notice about the new conditions that the apostles will soon be facing the whole world is going to be changed with what is going to happen over the next few days and the last little section is the lord jesus praying alone in the garden of gethsemane in submission to the eternal will of god he gives himself entirely to complete the work of salvation that God has determined from all of eternity. Now there's so much in this. that We have no hope in 25 minutes. To, uh, to really do much with it. But I'm going to uh, do a high level. Um, summary of the various sections. And draw out some things. Because what Luke gives us. I don't know if you, you had it going on in your head. When we're reading it. Well that just raises a question. That one raises a question. Luke's account is, is full with little things that cause us to stop and to think. To begin with, let's consider the Passover. It was the greatest of the pilgrimage festivals for the people of Israel. And the Jews would come up to Jerusalem, which was God's command, that when the people had entered the land and he had set his name in the place of his choosing, which was Jerusalem, the place of the king, he said, it's to that place you will come. And you will celebrate the Passover. And that Passover was the meal that looked back to the original Passover. And we read about that in Exodus 12. Where the Lord told the Jews who were in slavery in Egypt to take a lamb. And to keep it and then to kill it. Take its blood and put that blood around their their doorposts. And the lintel of the door. So that when God would pass through the land. And the angel of the Lord would pass through the land. The destroying one that he would see the blood and pass over them. There was judgment coming on Egypt. There was judgment coming for sin. But God was going to preserve his people when he would see the blood. So it was this meal that looked back to that, because that's what happened. The Jews were released from their slavery, brought into freedom, because of that blood that covered them. And God preserved them and brought them out. But the meal of the Passover was also a meal that looked forward. Because what God was drawing their attention to, this is Israel, back in the days of Moses and through the law that then was subsequently given to the people, 
was that there was going to be a greater one coming who was going to bring about an even greater deliverance, a greater freedom. So there was this Messiah figure that had been promised way back in the Garden of Eden, that had been promised to Abraham and then had come down through the patriarchs and was again repeated through the law to Moses and to the people. He says, God has done a great thing in bringing you out. So look back and remember that, but also at the same time you look forward. You look forward to this Messiah the greatest deliverer that God will provide, who will give his people a glorious inheritance. Our setting here in Luke 22 is um, AD 30, AD 33, there's debate over that. And you have heightened tension and heightened expectation amongst the Jewish people because the Romans have been in control for so long. Uh, the Romans conquered Jerusalem back in 63 BC, so they've had uh, almost a century of Roman oppression. And the Jews had known through their history that God delivered his people uh, from the nations that would oppress them. And there were, there were obviously people there that were looking to God's word and looking for this Messiah figure. And Jesus, over the previous number of years have been demonstrating something of the characteristics of the Messiah. And his disciples that are around him at the table are those who have declared, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They've come to the conclusion that in him is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. But their understanding of what he was going to do was different from what the Lord was actually going to do. So you have this heightened expectation and things have been starting to work towards a crunch time. We get it from Luke and we get it from the other gospel accounts that there was increasing hostility coming against the Lord Jesus. And Jesus was saying that I'm going to go into Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. He was clear with that. The disciples are wondering what on earth does that mean if he's the Messiah? That, that can't possibly happen. So maybe this is him saying that something great and glorious is going to happen and he's going to show himself to be the great conquering Messiah and get rid of the Romans and establish Israel as the greatest of the nations again. They have this in their mind. Things are getting to a sort of boiling point and they're sitting together around a table. It's back in John 11 and verse 16 that Thomas said with the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. That was to go and visit Mary and Martha whose brother Lazarus had died, to go near to Jerusalem, Thomas says, if we're going close, then our lives are at risk. So it's come to that point, and here they are in Jerusalem at Passover time, and they made a pilgrimage. Now it's usually a gathering of family groups. The Passover was when a family would come together, an extended family, and the head of that household would have the responsibility to work through a, a developed liturgy, uh, or a process of of the celebration of that which was looking back to what God had done when he brought his people out of the slavery of Egypt into the freedom of the promised land. And as they would look forward then to the Messiah doing something greater than that. There would have been four cups of wine, historians tell us, in the meal, which answers the question as to why there were two cups here, if that was one of your questions. We'll come to that in a moment. They would have taken roast lamb, because that was a vital part of the meal as instructed by God, or remembering that an animal, the lamb, had, had been killed and its blood had been taken 
as the means of a covering for their freedom. They would take in bitter herbs and unleavened bread as well. So that was their meal. And along with that was uh, this liturgy of, of prayers and the singing of the Psalms that we have from Psalm 113 through to 118 would have been interspersed. So imagine the scene that you've got this family gathering and the head of the household takes the family through the remembering of what had happened and there is the sharing of cups of wine, celebration, the sharing in the feast that God had said they would do and they're, they're enjoying that togetherness, anticipating something that is coming. Luke tells us here about two cups of wine. The first cup of wine is likely to be the first cup of wine they would have taken in a normal Passover feast, the first of the four, which was when there would be a prayer of dedication as they would think of and commemorate what was coming. That was really setting the thing off. I think that's what the Lord was doing here. He takes this first cup and he says, look, this is a a remembering of something, but he's going to introduce something greater. The second cup, it could have been the third or the fourth of their cups, which would have come after the meal. One was a cup of thanksgiving and the other was known as a a cup of um, blessing. It's interesting that Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, he says this to the church of God. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? The cup of thanksgiving. Whatever it was, whichever cup it was, those two cups at the end of the Passover liturgy feast were associated with thanksgiving to God for his freedom that he had brought to his people. Now I mentioned a couple of times that this was usually a family gathering. I think it's striking that here you have a group of men There are some family linkages in there, but this is not your normal family. But yet there's a togetherness that is centred around Jesus. And he gathers, and Luke is very careful. Did you notice that he shifts from saying disciples to apostles and back to disciples again? It says that he gathered with his apostles around the table. It's like we're meant to see that this is a new household. With Jesus as the head of a new household. He's drawing together a new group. According to different rules in a sense. Because he is ushering in something new. 22 verse 15. The Lord said. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's just about to commence the liturgy. As head of this household. With these men gathered around the table and they would have been reclining and were told that in the reclining John's uh, head was resting on the chest of the Lord. That was the, the intimacy of the gathering around this table in this furnished room that they found and they prepared all the things for. And the Lord says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It was a play on words. Passover in the Greek is the word pascha. And the word suffer is so closely linked to it, it's the word pasco. He says, I, we're, we're here and I have an earnest desire to share in this Passover Pascha with you before I pasco. Whoa. What are you saying, Jesus? 
He, he said to the disciples, and they must have been sitting there, the apostles, this group that were going to take this message of the kingdom that he'd come to begin sharing, and they were going to take it out. And he was saying something, I think in that opening little phrase, that there was something about fulfillment in him. He would be the fulfillment of what the Passover spoke of. And he goes on to say that. He says there's going to be a future fulfillment of the Passover in the kingdom of God. He says there's a, a glorious anticipation of when God is in complete control of everything in the future. And he will be part of that. He will be over all of that. Here he is gathered with his apostles who are expecting this new kingdom to come. And he gathers with them in this intimate setting as the head of the household to share with them in this Passover and introduce something new. It caused me to go to the, uh, the time in the Lord's experience. Do you remember when his mother and his brothers came and they wanted to extract him from the house because they were starting to think he was getting himself in trouble with the things he was teaching. Mark 3 verse 34 says, The Lord's response was, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Here you have around this table an intimate setting in a meal that looks back and a meal that looks forward. All of God. Speaking of God's deliverance, you have a new head of the household with those who do his will. And they're gathered around the table. This new household community was then to be characterised by self-sacrifice for the good of others. We have this dispute then about who's the greatest the Lord says well you chaps you apostles are going to have some significant responsibility in the future kingdom of God he speaks about them uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel that's something that's probably yet future but the apostles were those that the Lord had brought to himself himself being the apostle we're told he's an apostle by the book of Hebrews as the sent one of God he himself appointed the apostles to be sent once to go out with the message of the kingdom. And here they are squabbling about who's the greatest. And the Lord says not to be like this. The kingdom of God is not to be characterised by people who think they're better than other people. Or people who think they're not as good as other people. That's not to be part of it. He says you always think that other people are greater. And you see that then repeated throughout the New Testament. Letters of encouragements to the churches. But notice this. Verse 27. Who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is, not, is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Here was the Lord, this head of this new household, comprised of those who were doing his will. Those who had stuck with him in his trials. Did you get that? He said that to them. You've stuck with me. He's, he's inviting them to come to the table, to the place of fellowship and enjoyment. If you were invited into the home of somebody back in this day, it still is a feature today. You're invited into somebody's home. You, you're an honoured guest and you sit around the table and you enjoy the feast together. It was ratcheted up by several degrees back then, the significance of being gathered around the table. And you have the Lord saying, who's the greatest, the one at the table? The one who serves. The one who serves was not at the table. The one who serves was working around the table. 
you lay this alongside the experience that the disciples had had probably earlier on this evening that John tells us about where the Lord took a towel, taking off his outer clothes, he then wrapped himself in the towel, took the basin of water and went round and washed their feet because none of them thought they were low enough to do the servant's task. Here was the Lord saying, I'm among you as the one who serves. So the head of the household who's gathered this, this new community together to enjoy fellowship with him is also the same one who models for us the characteristics that are to be seen in the people who gather to enjoy him. And you see the Lord's heart then, don't you, when we move on to this little incident that he shares with, uh, with Simon, Satan, the adversary. He's asked to have you all. You twelve, one of them's probably gone at this point. He's gone out, Judas. Satan's got him. We have to be careful that if we think we're standing, we, we don't fall. But here's 11 of them. And the Lord says to Simon, he's asked to have you and to shake you through what is going to come. And he says, Simon, I have prayed for you specifically. The Lord's attention for those men who were going to be the sent ones with the news of this kingdom invitation to come and sit at the table with them. He says, Peter, I've prayed for you. He uses Simon's old name and he brings in Peter's new name that he gave him. Simon, Satan's after what you were before and he'll shake you and he'll expose that. But Peter, remember who you are by what I've done for you. You then have this... um, Experience where the Lord shares with the apostles how their ongoing allegiance to him, because they're, they're wondering what on earth is going on with this meal, I think. What the allegiance to him would mean for them. It's going to be a threat to their lives. This little tricky section that talks about the Lord saying, well, when I sent you out before, if you remember when he sent the apostles out and then he sent 70 out, 72 out, he says, you're to go and don't take anything with you apart from the bare essentials, and people will look after you. You'll be welcomed, and people will take care of you. He brings them back in their minds to that. He says, do you remember? Did you have to take anything? No, we didn't. He says, well, it's, it's all going to shift now. Here was the, the Jewish nation rising up against the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was going to persist. An antagonism against the person of the Lord Jesus Christ persists today because the adversary is against him and the sin in people's lives is against him. And the antagonism is there for those who say we're with Jesus. The Lord says to them that you take a purse, yourselves a bag, you go out and be prepared and then you have this really tricky one. And get yourselves a sword. Well, was the Lord endorsing uh, self-defense or violence for the kingdom of God? I don't think that's it at all. I don't think it's irony either. I think what the Lord is, is saying in this is that the, the circumstances that you have known where you've been welcomed generally and supported is going to be shifted so much so that your life is going to be at threat now. I think that's the point he's making. Because whenever they say, well, we've got two swords here. And the Lord, it 
it's difficult for the translators to grab what the response means. Some say, he says, well, that's, that's sufficient, which could be sarcasm. Or it is enough. And the Lord says, no, you're not getting it. As the NIV puts it with an exclamation mark, it's enough. That's enough. They weren't aware that there was going to be this mob that was going to turn up fully armed in the Garden of Gethsemane and two swords were going to be nothing, particularly in the hands of men who didn't have a clue how to use them. You remember what Peter did when he got the sword out? He managed to take a man's ear off. I still can't work out how that's possible. That you can take a man's ear off without taking, without taking his head off. So you can just see the lack of skill. It's almost like a fluke. But um, do you get the point? I think the Lord is saying, this is nothing. It's not about this. You are going to face this opposition that will be to the thread of your life. And so the language here is to heighten their understanding of what was coming. Allegiance to Christ could cost you your life. And then the Lord goes from the place of close fellowship around that table with everything that he said that John particularly in his gospel shares with us in the intimacy of that setting with this new household where he's the head but also the servant. He goes out to the garden of Gethsemane and he tells, tells eight of them, you stay there. He tells the other three, Peter, James and John, you come here but you stay there. Now they're used to going with the Lord wherever he would go. But the Lord goes a stone's throw further. And because he's going to a place of loneliness where only he could go. So that the fellowship that he had enjoyed with them in the evening just prior to that would be something that would continue. Sin had to be dealt with. And he as the God-man was here submitting himself in the garden as only he could do on on his own, and to the eternal will of God. Let's not think that there is any difference in the will of God. We, we worship one God, who is three persons. Those three persons of who God is do not have independent wills. What we're looking at here is God the Son having taken on human flesh as a man, and the reality of that combined in him. And here is the man who is God, recognising that he is here for the purpose that will take him through the cross experience in all of its horror, so that this table fellowship with this new household can be enjoyed, that sin could be dealt with through his sacrifice, through his serving of God, and then he would bring them into glory. Verses 43 and 44 are not in all the manuscripts that we have at doesn't mean that we should disregard them. But Luke is the only one who says that an angel appeared. The Lord needed strengthening. He wasn't going to find it in the men who were in the garden with him. It was sent from heaven. What were the men going to say to the Lord when he was grappling with this? They weren't going to come with the right perspective. So God sends us an angel. And you have the Lord who's being in an anguish praying earnestly it says that his sweat becomes like drops of blood falling into the ground there's the turmoil and the anguish of the saviour who's longing for this fellowship with those who are his that he knows can only come about and be sustained 
when he has gone through the experience that only he can go through as the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, who will be the sacrifice to answer the Passover. John the Baptist had pointed him out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here was the Lord sharing in this Passover feast this evening with his disciples. Going beyond that to the lonely place knowing that he has been the Lamb that has been prepared. And he's been watched over by these people. And he is the one who will go to the cross to give himself to rescue sinners. We're going to get there. In Luke's account, but it's a reminder today the Lord is fulfilling what it is that we have here regarding the Passover. Hebrews 2, verse 11. One of the greatest texts, if we're allowed to say that. Jesus is not ashamed to call them, them as those that God has called to himself through his sacrifice and his resurrection. To glory, he says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, and this was quoting the Old Testament, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praise. The Lord had come to a point where he must go himself to the place of suffering because he was the only one who could for sin. But he he was going there And coming through it so that he would redeem a people for himself that he had absolute delight in. A people that he called together as brothers and sisters. Among whom, he said, we will enjoy God's presence together. And I'll declare your praise. I'll declare God's praise with you in the presence of this group. I want us now to go back just for a few minutes to thinking about the the table fellowship scene and just to say a few things on the importance of this. The Lord took bread, the symbol, he says, of his body given for us. It's a reminder of the reality that God the Son took on human flesh in a miraculous way. He took the latter of the cups of wine that would have been shared around the table. There was participation in that. And he said it was the symbol of the new covenant that was going to come into effect through his own blood sacrifice. The blood speaks of his sacrifice. The reality of the cost to bring about deliverance and freedom. And this was the ushering in or the given to the apostles that the Passover was being fulfilled and would be fulfilled. Paul writes about it. He says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. But notice what the Lord says in this. In verse 22, verse 19, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Encouragement to us as those who gather to remember the Lord Jesus week by week is that we come to remember him. So the Lord said, he says, you're not remembering uh, the history of the Passover, though that, of course, will point to Christ. That's why when we come, we're full of the things about Christ that God has shown us in his word. It's all about him. Will you go with me to 1 Corinthians 11, please? Because the first written instruction about the remembrance feast was actually written by Paul 
much earlier than any of the gospel accounts. And if we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, here's Paul saying to the church of God in Corinth, who needed correction because they'd let things get out of control in the way they were going about life as a church. He says this in the midst of him having to correct why they'd come together to remember the Lord Jesus. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes here was Paul sent as an apostle writing to the church of God in Rome a group of people who said that Christ was their king who were submitting to his lordship just as the apostles had done round the table and what were they doing every week they were gathering round a table they weren't celebrating the Passover because that had been fulfilled in Christ But they were coming to do what the Lord had said, to remember him. Do this remembrance of me. There was this group of people who were enjoying the fellowship that comes from knowing Christ as Saviour. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, Paul there says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That sets the scene for what he says for the rest of his letter to the saints in Corinth. He says, you've been called into this fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And here is this central place of the table that is so vital for this. Verse 20, it's described as the Lord's Supper. Back in chapter 10 and verse 21 of 1 Corinthians, it's called the Lord's Table. It's the Lord's. He has authority. We call it today in the churches of God, the breaking of the bread. It's actually what should be on our sign. Because it was agreed uh, amongst overseers years ago that that would be the the phrase that should be used. Because it's used in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and also it's found in Acts chapter 20 verse 7. We often refer to it as the remembrance and that's what we have in our notice board. The remembrance. It's not a scriptural term but it's taking the Lord's words, remember me, and Allowing that name to characterise the gathering that we come together for. But notice that the feast that we now keep in fellowship with the one who is the new head of the household. Because the kingdom message that he came to preach has been preached through the apostles and it's come down in the ages to us as well. It looks back, yes, to him and his sacrifice, but it also looks forward until he comes. Did you see that in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11? Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have been delivered and brought into freedom, but there is a greater extent of that deliverance and freedom that is yet to come when our Saviour will return. I just want to say something very quickly about the bread and wine. We do not believe that the bread and wine change their form and become the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus. 
that's held by some in Christendom. We don't see that from Scripture. We also don't believe that the bread and wine remain as they are, but mysteriously at the same time there is the presence of the physical body and blood of the Lord Jesus. We don't believe that either because we don't see that from Scripture. First one is known as transubstantiation, the second one is consubstantiation. Now you can wake up again. What we do believe is that they are symbols that the Lord intended for us to take and to remember him by and to look forward to his return by. They don't become anything other than they are. They are symbols. That would seem to be the plain reading of scripture. Some would say that this memorialism, as sometimes it's known, means that then we have the pres- spiritual presence of Christ with us. But I'd like to say this on the basis of Hebrews 10. Please go there with me. Hebrews chapter 10. I believe it's something greater than the presence of Christ with us whenever we um, take the, the Lord's Supper, the remembrance, the breaking of the bread. It's actually something greater than that. Follow with me what the writer of Hebrews says to New Testament Believers who gather as a new household. He says in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore brothers and sisters. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Notice by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. His body and blood. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. And with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from all guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. It's a memorial. It is. But we don't have the spiritual presence of Christ with us. Here in this room, on the basis of this text, those who gather for table fellowship, that the Lord loved that night of the Passover feast, actually, it's by means of those that we enter into the presence of God himself. This is the fellowship that the Saviour came to bring us into the joy of. So the Lord Jesus fulfilled the Passover imagery by his own sacrifice so that we would be gathered into this fellowship of joy submitting to his lordship that centered around the remembrance of himself looking back but also anticipating his return but you notice what it said in Hebrews 10 as well it's a repeat of Luke 22 I am among you as one who serves here is the great priest over the house of God who serves on behalf of God and on behalf of those who come as the worshipping people. He is the one who draws us into the fellowship so that we might enjoy him. And he gets up and he works on behalf of his people before his God and Father to bring our worship to him. What a saviour. Let's pray.